0: We stand today. This is method, the business, With method. the
1: business Method, the
0: Business Method podcast,
1: the Business Method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds, entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics ladies and gentlemen boys and girls people of all ages i'm your host chris reynolds and welcome to the business method podcast a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high performance experts dissecting their different methods tools and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives we've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today the billionaire ceo of priceline jeff hoffman the ceo of chipotle Monty Moran world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion-dollar company, Janet Howroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high-performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro podcast episodes that are just two to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode.
2: The Business Method.
1: Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs, like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermozzi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at TheBusinessMethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Could you imagine inheriting a 150-year-old $2 billion media company at the age of 26? I couldn't then along with managing this media behemoth, losing the company completely over the next few years. Our guest today lived through that. That's right, not too long out of graduate school, Warwick Fairfax inherited Fairfax Media, one of the top media companies in Australia, worth $2.25 billion, and then began the painful process of watching his family's company slip away one day at a time until it was all gone. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast. Today, we have a very unique story to tell you. In the intro, you learned a bit about Warwick Fairfax, and we will get to hear the exact story of what it was like for him as a young man losing his family's company. But there's more. We'll also hear how he turned his entire life around after that experience and where he's ended up today as a businessman, Wall Street Journal best-selling author, consultant, and entrepreneur. It's going to be an exciting show, so let's jump into it. Work, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very good, and thanks so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I think, you know, we've got a little over an hour to chat, so I, I would just like to dive into the history of Fairfax, because not only is it fascinating, you know, your experience that you went through and then you were also able to bounce back after that and become a successful individual, Um, but um, coming from a place as, as a child growing up in the family business and then um expecting your entire life to take over that business that being your life path and then everything having to change but then the history of this family business is over 150 years old which is fascinating so could you take us back to what was it 1841 when this company started yeah exactly chris so um yeah i know a lot of folks
2: uh, in your audience are you know, business owners, executives and uh, there was sort of a microcosm of uh, some lessons we can learn from the founder of the family business, John Fairfax. Um, his success was really sown in the seeds of tragedy, funnily enough. So uh, He was in England in you know, 1830s or so. He was a newspaper man. He founded a, uh, a business and Little town, Leamington Spa in the county of Warwick in England. And uh, he was doing pretty well. And he wrote an article about a local lawyer. And the lawyer sued him for defamation twice. But the judge ruled in John Fairfax's favor, saying the story was accurate about this unscrupulous lawyer. Mm -hmm. But back then, you had to pay your own court costs. So even though he was vindicated, he was bankrupted (laughs) by this uh, lawyer. So at that point... He said, you know, forget this and moved his family in the, I don't know, five, six month journey it took by sailing ship to Australia. Yeah, uh, He ended up uh, buying a uh, the Sydney Morning Herald with the partner and that grew to be a very large business. So it's a case of, he could have said at that point, you know, I mean, why bother founding a business that these unscrupulous people will stab you in the back. Life's not fair. Even when you win, you lose. Right. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous. The judge says you win. But he loses anyway right uh, so anyway this company grew to be a very large uh, family business uh, it had uh, newspapers magazines newsprint mills uh, tv radio stations it had the australian equivalent of the new york times wall street journal um, and washington post 7,000 or 700 million odd in revenue, 4,000 employees it was a massive company. Wow. So I was the fifth generation uh you know the the great great grandson of the founder John Fairfax. So growing up it was a little bit like growing up in the royal family. Um mm. so to not go into the family business would be a bit like Prince William saying to his dad and grandmother, I'm just not feeling the whole royalty bit. You know, yeah, and yeah. look what's gonna happen to Prince Harry. I mean, it's not easy to get out. Uh, <laughs> the right. British public don't like it, you right. know, uh, frankly. So, yeah, I've never been in the military, but it was this sense of duty on a country. I mean, we weren't just making widgets. We were producing uh, quality media to help uh, the nation of Australia. Yeah, We weren't like uh, media magnets that just kind of pay for play. Hey, you know, want a good story? That's great. There are other media barons that have this philosophy is oh you know the prime minister's a mate of mine yeah. so therefore we'll have good press and you know we'll all all we'll be good you know he'll pat you know he'll do stuff for me i'll do stuff for him and we were never like that it's you know we would uh, encourage our journalists to be independent and you couldn't quote unquote you know buy the fairfax media mm. uh you know we would you know rightly or wrongly in terms of our editorial and art and, and uh, newspaper columns we would always try to, um, you know, if people need to be exposed, they would be exposed, you know, politically or, or otherwise. So that was, you know, so my whole life uh, leading up to the $2.25 billion taker in 87. I, you know, uh, some kids of wealthy family businesses, as folks will know from media or even Hollywood, you know, they drive Ferraris, they do drugs, substance abuse. That's a common narrative right. um, in movies and in life. That was not me. I was quote, unquote, the good son, not the prodigal son. I kind of worked hard, you know, took life seriously, got my undergrad at Oxford, like my dad and some other relatives, worked on Wall Street, got my MBA at Harvard Business School. So um, yeah, I just felt like this was a sacred cause. And uh, that just increased expectations exponentially, because I worked hard, tried Mm -hmm. to be humble. So basically, in the lead up to the major event what precipitated it was my dad died in early 87. He was a lot older than me, I was from marriage number three, he was in his 80s. Uh, there was a sense that, uh, from him anyway, my parents, you know, he was no longer in you know, control, so to speak, that the company wasn't being well managed, wasn't being run along the ideals of the founder, the company was 50% held by the family, the rest publicly held. Uh, the public uh, share price of the company rocketed up. It's the eighties. People felt like the company was in play. Uh, so I felt like I needed to do something to preempt any hostile takeover and bring the company back to play a deal the founder have it be well managed. So it launched this big takeover. So whether that was a good idea or not is obviously another question we'll get into. But I was this young, naive, idealistic crusader. Terrible things can happen out of youth Naivety and a crusader mentality, and it did for me. So that's kind of the, the backstory leading up to the the big event, I guess. Yeah,
1: you mentioned this, but I want to put it in context again for the listeners. Um, so Fairfax Media um, was influential in the history of Australia, you know, because in the early mid eighteen hundreds, that's when Australia, like America, was really being established and starting to be governed and structured, right? And then you have Fairfax Media, which is equivalent to Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Um, So, like, politicians were paying attention to what you guys were saying because if you like, Fairfax literally had the power to influence a person's career uh, politically. And so that is a significant organization not only is it a two billion dollar company and you guys had like newspapers television stations and radio stations like all in a conglomerate, correct? Yeah exactly yeah exactly and And so this was a um, a bit of a pillar for the history of Australia you know through through throughout those times and and then here you are you know, you know, 26 year old guy, you know, out of grad school, uh, well-educated, you know, your dad brought you up in this, this environment. You're like, I'm going to take this over. But I thought something was interesting. Um, back in 1930, was it your grandfather that took the company over when he was 28? Was that, is that correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, what happened is actually with, with my dad was, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, he'd finished college at Oxford and his, his dad died of a heart attack. In fact, they kind of on the golf course between the 17th and 18th uh, tee, funnily enough. And so Mm -hmm. my dad at about about my age, give or take, I forget, maybe 27, somewhere around there, he ended up um, basically being in control. He was considered the heir and pretty soon after became managing director. So at about a similar age to me, you know, he was in a position where he was the leading figure in the company, which he was for, I don't know, 40 plus years after that. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting, um, I mean, he didn't need to take over, take it over, but he was in that leading position pretty much close to the same age as I was. So that, that is an interesting coincidence, actually. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, so it wasn't like the first time it had happened. And, and so they probably had some confidence that, oh, it's been done once before, you know work will be all right well let's, yeah uh, let's send it let's have well, it, try I mean it the thing is it, it, yeah I mean
2: in my case I was the rest of my family considered a hostile takeover back then he was just mm-hmm. uh, inheriting it but yeah I mean if, if I'd done things differently uh they might have you know and if somehow I didn't take it over and somehow it was not leading position at that age depending on how I handle it, since I worked hard, yes, there was a precedent for somebody young being in a leading, in a leading role, but the way I did it, it just, um, angered my, the other large share, uh, you know, blocks of shares who were controlled by the family. They didn't want to be in a, you know, fa- in a family business controlled by a 26 year old where I'd have all the decisions. And mm-hmm. so they sold out and, uh, October 87 stock market crash happened, which hurt our asset sales. So by the end of 87, we had an unsustainable level of debt. I did bring in new management that increased operating profits 80% the first year. Mm-hmm. I suppose validating my thesis that it wasn't optimally managed, but the debt was so high, it didn't matter what was happening at an operating level. What was, was three the debt later? around? Just curious. Uh, like 500, let's, let me think. Um, <sighs> It was probably at least five seven 700 million um, by the end of 87. Actually, probably, that's a good question. Probably more, might've been north of a billion come to think of it. Uh, the numbers all get so big, it's but a lot. Um,
0: yeah. it,
2: was, it was basically unsustainable. And then by the end of um, 1990, Australia got in a big recession and newspapers are very cyclical. And so we had to file for bankruptcy. So pretty much as soon as I started the takeover it was doomed to fail. Mm. So, you know, you ask yourself, you know, I had a Harvard MBA. I launched the take a few months after I graduated. It wasn't like it was that far away from my classes. Right. How could I have made so cataclysmic assumptions? And there are always reasons, but, uh, yeah, it was, it's pretty amazing that, um, I did what I did given failure was, I wouldn't say guaranteed, but pretty close. Yeah. Not too many people make business decisions going into it when a rational person would say your chance of success is, I don't know, one percent, five percent. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Most intelligent people then say, I don't think I want to go ahead with that decision. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and but like I did. I, sorry, go <laughs> ahead. Uh, I, I went to graduate school, too. And what they prepared me for at graduate school was nothing compared to the real world, you know, and, and, right. and I didn't go to Harvard, but um, you know, I could imagine, you know, just any, any student coming out of school, you think you're really prepared until the real world hits. And then also I was an entrepreneur, an early entrepreneur in the 2008 recession, and I lost a business as well. And sometimes economic factors just play such a massive role that you, it doesn't matter who's right. in charge. Right. And, and there's a lot of debt there. There's a lot of just moving pieces. Family wasn't happy. Investors weren't happy, you know, and so it makes, takes a, a, a big toll on somebody but on top of that your dad your dad had passed away just the year before right Right. yeah
2: yeah I I think one of the things that important for listeners to understand is it doesn't matter how smart you are sometimes often emotional factors will impede your judgment yeah and that's probably what's one of the leading causes of business failure probably the economy and market shifts but up there is emotional factors that cloud good judgment and stop you listening to people you need to listen to. So in my case, some of the backdrop for why I made such a cataclysmically uh, terrible decision was uh, in 1961, uh, some other members of my family uh, after my uh, ugly divorce from my dad's second marriage to my mother, the third marriage, he said, well, we need you to take a bit of a break from being chairman for a few months while all the dust settles, which he didn't really appreciate. And then in 76, like, uh, you know, uh, 16 or so uh, years later, uh, other members of my family removed him as chairman. He was 74 and great health, you know, metal acuity was very high. And uh, he felt like just stabbed in the back. I was, you know, Mm. uh, probably about 15 at the time. So did that have some subliminal subconscious influence in me? Probably, not consciously, but it's like, Mm-hmm. why should I subconsciously care about these other members of my family when they stab my dad in the back? Yeah. Once they tried to second time, they succeeded. So, um, that and my dad dies and gosh, I want to preserve his legacy. And so it it, it was sort of a point where I was sort of hell bent on doing this. And I wasn't really listening to the what, what I should have listened to. Here's another good example, which will give listeners some pause in, uh, First part of 87, I consulted some top uh, merchant bankers, which the US equivalent of investment bankers, you know, the blue chip, the best of the best, the equivalent of like a Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, people you do when you're about to make a big takeover. Right. And they looked at it all and they said, you know what, Warwick, uh, the numbers don't add up. It does not make sense. Uh, if and when there is a hostile takeover, then rally the family and that's a better play. Being young, naive, I felt like, well, That's not what I want to hear. They're not taking me seriously. I'm just a young 26 year old. So that's not what I want to hear. And so then, this is the era of corporate takeovers. I went with advisors who had been advisors to some of the most successful corporate raiders in the country. They were quote unquote successful, Mm -hmm. but their ethics and the way of doing business is a bit different than the blue chip merchant bankers, you know? Right. And so they said, can, can we do it? Yeah. Now, can we? can we do it and make it sustainable will be another question, but can we make it quote unquote succeed and we'll get paid. And so, you know, it's not so much that what they do is wrong, but I don't think that was a bit of a good fit for what I needed. Yeah. You know, uh, that was just a poor decision to ignore the blue chip merchant bankers and go with the corporate Raiders takeover advisors.
1: <laughs> it's just
2: very, it's just very different, you know? Right. I don't say you get what you pay for, but it's like, yeah, it was just so many bad decisions. But really the the core of the why is because my emotions clouded my judgment. I was yeah. not thinking straight. Making an assumption that other family members would stay locked into a privatized company run by a twenty six year old, no rational person would do that. Right. But I made the assumption that they would. Yeah. You know, they can keep their titles. I'll work in the marketing department and I just want to see it be well run. It was just hopelessly and tragically naive. So there yeah. yeah, are a lot of lessons there in terms of what not to do and takeovers.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I can imagine that. And and I think a lot of people don't really understand the, the dynamic of family involved in a business, especially the bigger that it gets. Um, there's a movie that just came out recently, uh, Gucci. Have you seen it?
2: Uh, I've heard of it. I've seen the trailers. Okay. Yeah. And obviously,
1: people talk about
2: succession, which I haven't seen. Because, I don't know, it's probably too close to real life <laughs> for me to be able to handle. <laughs>
1: fair, fair. So so if anybody wants to understand that dynamic more, I recommend seeing that movie. And um, Lady Gaga is actually the main character. And in in the movie, in Gucci, Gucci's history is, you know, I don't know when they started, probably over 100 years as well. Um, started Gucci clothing line, um, fashion, became a billion dollar giant family, the family environments and the Gucci family was so toxic and so, um, vengeful over one another. And, and, and many people were just in it for getting whatever they could get out of it. And it wasn't about putting, um, you know, the right leadership in roles or in, or about really building the company. It was about who had the power, you know, and at the end, all the Gucci members, uh, all the Gucci family members got pushed out by outsiders that came in and, um, corporate people that came in and eventually said, you guys are just like, you we we don't want you around anymore and and you know it's hard like um when your family comes after you and when your family disagrees with you and when they have their self-interest above the success of the company, you know, or your own, you know, your own health, your own mental health and all of it. Like it's a lot. It's a lot. I couldn't imagine doing that as a 26 year old. Um, So, um, you know, and then bouncing back after that, which is, which is what you know, we'll get into, but that was uh, incredible that you did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's
2: uh, a very interesting analogy i mean most family businesses whether they be big or small have challenges and in in our case it wasn't so much that you know there was a bunch of bad people and other factions um it was a bit more nuanced than that but there was friction between different family members going back decades and there are reasons uh but there were that tends to be it's hard to have a a climate of openness and trust in family businesses so Mm -hmm. You know, I certainly didn't feel that, you know, quote unquote, a safe space where at a young age, I could say, look, I know you threw my dad out as chairman in 76, but what's your truth? What's your part of the story? Mm-hmm. I felt like, well, I know what the truth is. I don't need to ask them, but do was horrifically wrong. Right. What's there to know? Right. Yeah. You, countries feel like they know the truth. The other country is the enemy. Mm, you know, political it's just parties. an age old. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. If you're an R or a D, you know, you're the enemy and I don't need mm-hmm. to know, know you what you, you're evil and all that kind of deal. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a common parable and it was the same. So it's just when there's power and money, people jogging for position, who's going to be the heir and, uh, you know, who's going to inherit what from whom? I mean, power and money. It does tend to erode character and the soul irrespective of the humans involved
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know it just it does tend to do that and it, it, there aren't too many family businesses that don't deal with that mistrust fear jockeying for position and yes in some cases uh and maybe other families uh it's all about the cars and the nice houses and oh, let me have that the bigger jet and the house in monte carlo and Right. You know, it, it's never enough. Whatever you have, you always want the next level, which right. is a whole nother story. No matter how successful you are, there's typically always somebody that's more successful. And yeah. believe it or not, wealthy people are envious of yeah. the people who are even more wealthy Yeah, and more went, powerful. A Very yacht, rarely yeah. will you be at the top and saying, I am the wealthiest person on the planet. I have, a, I have the biggest house on the planet, the biggest jet, the, the, the most Ferraris yeah i don't know who that person is but yeah
1: there aren't too many of those (laughs) well well there is no top it's a facade right and then if you are there you know a lot of people say it's very lonely because they don't have very many people they can one trust or one um relate to and so they and they have so much pressure at the top you know it's like Uh, kings and queens and and presidents like they they presidents understand one another more than you know people of their same party because they had the same job together Um, and yeah so exactly and that's
2: you're highlighting a very important theme Chris is that um, certainly I've found for those who haven't had a whole lot of money or material success it may be difficult to understand but I'm not against success but success, power, and status in of itself doesn't satisfy. I mean, growing up in the Fairfax family in Sydney, Australia, we had as much money, success, power, and status as you could want. Not only did we have money, we were respected. Mm -hmm. Now most wealthy people, they want the power and the money, but they want respect too. Sometimes they do it through philanthropies, hopefully for good reasons, sometimes maybe not. Mm -hmm. We had all of that, respect, status, power, but yet it doesn't make you happy, you know. Right. It just it, it just tends not to. And so to me, what I found is success is fine, but significance, which we define a crucible leadership of life on purpose, dedicated to serving others, some altruistic goal, that's what truly satisfies. If you can have a business in which you're feeling like you're making a difference in other people's lives, yeah, you can actually get to the point where you can be successful and enjoy your life. And maybe not feel quite so guilty, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's really key. But if it's all about some narcissistic, it's all about me. Humans aren't wired to be success- to be fulfilled and happy as narcissists. You might not like the way humans are wired, but every human being has this innate characteristic, this desire that they will be happy if they serve others in some fashion. So if you want to be a narcissist, go right ahead. But guaranteed, you will not be happy or fulfilled.
1: Yeah. And you realize that one day, probably on your deathbed, but at that point, it's too late. Right, know? exactly. Nobody wants on their tombstone, I was the richest man in the, the graveyard, you know, they they said I, they want, like, I made a difference. <laughs> that's that's what people want when they die. Right.
2: My, my kids love me, my wife, my husband, friends, co-workers, mm-hmm. I made a difference.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a key lesson I've certainly learned growing up the way I did. So it was um, about a three-year process from when you took over Fairfax to when then then it was pretty much gone. Um, Could you take us through some of the emotions that you went through through that process?
2: Yeah, I mean, as soon as the company was taken over, or we took it over, I felt a bit like a, a deer in the headlights. We were in refinancing meetings constantly. I mean, there was a time in which we met with some investment bankers in New York, went back to Australia and like a day later, no joke, I got on the plane to go back to New York. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a 20 plus hour uh, flight. flight. Yeah. It's, not, it's not quick. Uh, and so I brought in new management, which as I mentioned, they did a good job, but I was so out of my element, so didn't want to be there that I did everything you shouldn't do. Did I you know, manage by walking around, encouraging journalists and other stuff? No. I never went there because I felt so uncomfortable when I would go in the elevator in in the morning. I just wanted to get out of there. I just felt like I don't want to be here. But you see, I was one of the other big lessons. I was living somebody else's life, not even my dad, probably the founder. I was just, I'm a reflective advisor. I like writing and, you know, uh, uh, blogs and other things. We do at crystal leadership, but running a large business, being in the limelight, Mm-hmm. that's not me but it was too late at that point and yeah. so those three years were painful there's numerous refinancings but it got more painful when the company went under the day it went under in december 1990 we had three tv networks on our door i was married by then i met an american girl in australia and that's one of the reasons we've lived in the u.s for 30 plus years is A, I could because I was married to an American, and B, I I'd happy to get out of Australia. It's like I'm escaping <laughs> from a gilded prison. Australia is a wonderful place, but not for me. Right. Certainly back then. But when the company went under to have the equivalent of ABC, you know, NBC, CBS on your doorstep, right. you know, TV cameras, and, you know, it was national news. So the years after was just so, so difficult. In the 90s were difficult years. I felt like I let my parents down, my ancestors. I caused friction within the family. Yes, they sold out and probably got hundreds of millions of each major block, but still, that wasn't their choice. I think from their perspective, they felt mm-hmm. forced to. Um, you had 4,000 and plus employees feeling like, what's going to happen now? We felt safe with the Fairfax family earning us because they're kind of they're gonna run it with integrity. Who's gonna earn us now? Right. Now, yes, life went on, somebody bought it, but still to this day, you have people saying, you know, life would have been better, would have been different if we had the protection, if you will, of the Fairfax family. Right. And you know, newspapers have been hit by digital and there's other economic and market factors that I don't know that we could have helped with, but that's another story. But yeah, the feeling like I let my family down and in some sense, I'm a person of faith and the founder was a person of very strong Christian faith. So in my naivety, I felt like, gosh, God must have a plan somehow for me to be there. There's some divine universal plan. And I blew that one. That was soul crushing.
0: Uh
2: Obviously, if some universal creator wanted it to happen, it would have happened from my perspective. But yeah, the sense of I I hurt people, i made so many mistakes. It took years to recover from that. My self-esteem was just destroyed after that. I mean, I kept saying to myself, I have a Harvard MBA. MBA. How could I have been so dumb? How could I have been so dumb? Mm-hmm. Still to this day, it's hard for me to fathom. I mean, I get intellectually, it's, I still think, gosh, what did I ignore that good advice? I mean, this wasn't me, but... I don't know. So yes, the aftermath was it was very difficult to come back from. That extremely difficult.
1: When do you think you uh, you said you got, I almost say fully recovered, but um, kind of got back to your your new normal. How long did it take? Well, it took years. I mean, I think some of the the path
2: back was, from my perspective, realized despite my na- naivety and poor assumptions, if God had wanted it to be happen, it would have. The Creator, whoever you see Him to be, <clears throat> doesn't need our stuff. You know, we're loved just because of who we are.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Having a wife that loved me for who I was, she didn't. You know, she didn't need millions or billions. You know, we weren't out on the street. We were okay. Having a young family, they just knew me as dad I have two sons and a daughter—and then I began to find meaningful work that I could do. First, at like an aviation services company, doing some business and financial analysis. This was just pre-internet, so they didn't really know who I was. You couldn't really Google me, and I certainly didn't advertise it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but gradually, I began. That that was a that was a step. Hey, you know, I got good performance reviews. I'm analytical. Back in the day, I could do Excel pretty well. Um, you know, then I, from there, I got into executive coaching. Certified in National Coach Federation executive coach gosh i seem to be good at asking questions and helping leaders think through things and um you know there was step by step that i began i got on two nonprofit boards an elder to non-denominational church a private school board um you know um back then so a little bit by little bit it was almost like drops of grace there are things that i can do like breadcrumbs that showed i can actually be a good reflective advisor mm-hmm. i have a perspective on leadership but more from an advisory perspective rather than a CEO. So I began to get a better picture of who I was and how I could contribute to the world. So, but it wasn't some big Mount Olympus vision. Uh, It was, you know, drop of grace by drop of grace. I began to see who I was as I began to do things in which I could help my other people, but also do well. It also began to heal my soul in a sense, not overnight, but bit by bit. That yeah. was probably the key path back is finding things I could do and realizing who I was. And it was okay to be me. Yeah. Not everybody has to be Rupert Murdoch or some big, you know, media conglomerate person. And it's okay. It's yeah. okay to be you.
1: Yeah. And you move, you moved to America not too long after that. And then started, what was Just a regular nine to five job, right? What were, what were you doing when you got to America?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that first regular job was, you know, in Maryland, where I live, um, working at a local aviation services company doing business and financial analysis. Mm -hmm. So that was the first regular job. And, yeah, I kind of dumbed down my resume, which didn't seem ethically. It didn't, you know, because I I, I couldn't get a job as like an ex-media mogul. So somehow it didn't bother me. But um, (laughs) as I said, pre-internet, yeah, they couldn't really Google me. I mean, you don't really Google people. I guess you look them up on social media these days, but that didn't exist back then, fortunately. So. Yeah, that was the first regular
1: job, which I was very gratified to have something I could do and do you know, pretty well. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I was I was interested in, in, in knowing how you felt about going for, you know, back to it like a nine to five job as opposed to leaving the position you were. Um, if it was if it was relieving for you and, and more much more even fulfilling and relaxing or or just uh, something to get by at the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm not
2: somebody that, you know, I don't care about titles and parent or even money. The mm-hmm. one thing that did give me pause, I remember thinking I've got to be the lowest paid Harvard Business School graduate in history, because uh-huh. this wasn't like some high flying job. And it's not about the money, but as a, as a measure of my, I don't know, success, when, you know, maybe some of my folks I went to business school with, I remember reading one time, one guy that I knew from business school was like CEO of Continental Airlines, which is a few airline mergers ago. I was like, huh, uh, okay, good for him. But I guess that's not me, is it?
1: <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's not uh, I mean... Greg, Greg, is that Greg Brenneman? Is that? No, it's no. not. It's, uh, uh, he was uh, on the yeah. podcast about a year ago. No, this is, yeah, uh, this is somebody else, uh, you
2: know, maybe before him, but um, yeah. Yeah, but that no, was, more, but, yeah. yeah. I didn't mind being a cubicle per se. It just, um, uh, I was happy for the work and, uh, you know, eventually I moved on to coaching cause I felt like, again, I'm a person of faith, you know, God, or whoever up there is like, you know, where you're playing small, you're not using all the gifts and abilities you have. Yeah. You could do financial analysis, but there are, uh, there are other things that you can be using. So playing small, it's not about arrogance. It's using all you have, you know, for others and, the, and help the world be a better place. So uh, that was sort of a, a key pivot for me moving on from there to uh, doing executive coaching. So that, that was a, a small, small, big step, really, in a lot of ways.
1: How long did it take you to go from um, um, leaving uh, Fairfax to, you know, coming to America to then starting your own your own business, your own venture again?
2: Yeah, it's probably the the most key point it was in two thousand and eight when uh the pastor of my church, uh again, non denominational church, like about two thousand odd, uh pre pandemic, um said we like to uh, you to give a sermon illustration and um I said, That's fine. I'm not certainly back then Mr. Public Speaker, but I, uh, you know, gave my story, and since the church, I felt like put some lessons. I felt like God had taught me. And what amazed me in the weeks and months after, people would come up to me and say, "You know, Warwick, what you shared really helped me." And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, how many ex-media moguls are there in the congregation? Like none. How could anybody relate to my story? It's one thing if you say, "Gee, I'm a cancer survivor," or, right. you know, physical challenges. There are other people, sadly, that can relate to that. This. But somehow by being authentic and vulnerable, people felt like they got some, uh, you know, it helped them. And so at that point, having resisted for years the idea to write about my story, because it was so painful. Why would I want to relive something that's so painful? And I've never been one to write about, oh, I was right, they were wrong. You know, that's self-serving and typically wrong. Yeah. But if I can write a book in a lessons learned format to help people, so then I, it took me years to write because imagine writing about your most painful moments yeah. after two hours a day, I'd be like, I'm done. I yeah. cannot, I cannot write anymore. But that was really the driver. I, I wrote the book initially thinking of it straight to get it published, but some publishers wanted more of a sensational thing. And I wasn't going to diss on other family members. Uh, so One publisher said, you know, we might be interested at some point, but you need to create a brand. I'm thinking, okay, I have a Harvard MBA, I get the concept. So back in about 2016, I began um, with a great uh, team in Denver, Signal, uh, that created a a branding and marketing plan. And then from there, blogs, social media, our own podcast, Beyond the Crucible. Uh, My book was published October, 2021. I've begun speaking so it all grew out of the book
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then like a lot of visions you don't have this massive 20-year vision it's like i want to publish a book oh i, I want to i need to have an audience that's going to buy the book got it okay so we better do social media and branding and podcasting and it all but it all grew out of that talk in church in 2008 basically mm-hmm. if my story can help people it is worth the pain of writing so my whole motivation for what I do is not about money and dollars and stuff. Money still doesn't motivate me, I'm not against it. We have a very comfortable lifestyle, comfortable than, more comfortable than most, but it's all about helping people. That's what motivates me to take the new step. And each year, okay, what are we gonna do this year? How are we gonna move the, the ball forward? How are we gonna deepen the message with folks? How are we gonna reach more folks? It's all about helping people. That is my driving motivation, yeah. if you will, for what I do with Crucible
1: Leadership. But it all started with that talking church in two thousand and eight. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it's our, our darkest moments are, are given to us um so we can overcome them and then help others get out of their darkest moments, right? And and while they they suck <laughs> going through and even recovering from, you know, there's there's a there's a reason for it. You know, there's a reason why we go through all those. And and I remind myself that consistently, anytime I'm having a hard time or I'm a little, you know, down on myself or depressed or things aren't going my way, and I'm just like, you know, like this is. This is this is all for 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 some reason so I can inspire others. I I lost my first business in two thousand eight after the recession, and I was eating cans of uh, cans of a can of corn and green beans for lunch, and and then I had, would have cereal with water in it for breakfast, and I was twenty six twenty seven so near the age you were yeah, when you took a yeah, Fairfax. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, the yeah. naiveness. but I was still like you know I'm <laughs> not going to give up you know like uh, uh, this experience is is going to help other people someday. And it was one of the things that just kind of, I remember that moment, kept kept me going through through all the years and still here as an entrepreneur going today.
2: Well, it's it's it's
1: so true. I mean,
2: one of the things, and I feel like, I'm sure like you, I keep learning. I mean, on our own podcast, Beyond the Crucible, we had a a series in which we were resilient late last year. We were interviewing a number of people. And I remember there was an Australian woman we uh, were talking to and she became a as uh, a of quadriplegic when at age 12, when she uh, dove into an above ground pool, you know, above ground pools, are typically not that deep. Mm-hmm. And her parents told her, Hey, Stacy, don't do it. You know, don't, don't dive into the pool. When you're a 12 year old, you just t- think you're bulletproof and ignore your parents advice. That's right. normal operating procedure. And so she had to go through years that this was all my fault, but now she speaks and she consults. She just has this happy, vibrant personality And she said to to me, you know, what I went through was a gift. Now how could being diagnosed as a quadriplegic be a gift? And I've heard more than one person say that, but it's not so much she's happy that what happened to her, but it was more, she wouldn't be the person she is without that. I imagine for you too, you wouldn't be the person you are now without that, you know, challenge back in 2008. So I never thought of what I went through as a gift or a blessing, but in recent months I've begun to see, you know, I've got, it does feel true, you know, cause I wouldn't be who I am now without that. So, yeah, you know, hard times can be, can be a blessing. There's no way you're going to see that at the time. I'm not here to say, Oh, becoming a parap- paraplegic is, is, is a blessing. I mean, it's right. just no way that that's true, but I don't know. That just floored me. When uh, Stacy Copas as her name said that it's like, I'm sorry, what? what you went through is a blessing yeah that makes no sense to me there's i've heard of psychological reframing but that's this is ridiculous but yeah i i think i get where she's coming from yeah
1: um i uh yeah i i i completely agree that's what you guys talk about that a lot on your podcast right um you 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 talk about people's darkest moments and then transforming and and becoming stronger individuals and helping people is all the guests that come on your show or that are are people that have gone through things like that yeah i'd say we have two kinds of guests one kind of guest is um the pure crucible
2: um and basically what we say is your worst day doesn't define you Mm -hmm. um you can uh, bounce back it's funny i wrote a um a short social media post a couple of days ago because like a lot of folks you know we all watch the olympics and
0: mm-hmm.
2: listeners probably remember Lindsay jacob ellis uh the snowboard cross uh, uh you know snowboarder in 2006 in the turin game she was in the lead by a-, a ways she goes over the last jump and does this hot dog celebratory deal and she falls and comes in second she just mm. she just Made the jump and didn't do anything stupid. She would have won. Well, Olympics after Olympics, she kept coming back and not making it. Finally, at age 36, she's here at the games in Beijing in 2022, and she wins. <laughs> you know, she doesn't see it as redemption, but she said, "I I wouldn't have stuck with the sport of snow of, you know, uh, cross snowboarding this these many years." But I was driven to, to try and improve the sport. She's a hero to a lot of young women who want to go in that sport. But, you know, for, for years, everybody said to her, so Lindsay, why did you do that stupid move? You know, right. year after year, after year. I mean, that was really stupid, wasn't it? Yeah. And I mean, what do you say to that year after year? But, um, you know, it's, you know, how do you not let that define you? So that's a yes. recent example, but we have a lot of guests in which, you know, the, the darker state doesn't define them. They, you know, they, they bounce back, they forgive themselves, they forgive others, they use their pain for a purpose. We've had folks of every gender, race, tragedy you can think of, and the path back is pretty much identical for mm-hmm. everybody. And it's, you know, it's not letting your worst day define you, think, you know, using it, your pain to serve others, forgiveness of yourself and others, find your calling, understand how you're why, The path back is the same and I just find that so affirming to tell people stories and to learn from them yeah it's just it's incredibly motivating to me
1: I was thinking of you before the show because along the topic that we were just you were just mentioning um, one of the more impactful books in my life is um, the Lone Survivor uh, which is also a movie and I don't know if you're familiar with it Hmm. but it's the story of Marcus Luttrell who was a Navy SEAL Went into Afghanistan with his team, um, lost like I think 16 Navy mm-hmm. SEALs. He went in with four people, all of them died except him, and then he was terrorized um, by the Taliban for five days until other special forces can f- come in and finally get him out. And he came, he came out when he was in his late 20s, incredibly tra- traumatized, almost died. Um, shot a few times. And, um, and then, you know, he, he started the long journey of rehabilitating himself and then also separating himself from uh, what everybody knows him as. And he, and he was saying like the hardest part about all of this is not only I lost all my best friends, but um, now everybody wants to talk to me all the time about the worst day in my life. And, and I was like, you know, and I, you know, or the worst moment in his life. And I was like, oh, wow. And, and I thought about you and I was like, like, you know, uh, curious to know more about your process of handling. Cause I think it could help other people. Um, you know, why, you know, so many people throughout the past 30 years or so have probably wanted to talk to you about one of the hardest times of your life. Right. And for those people that are um, either defined by a moment that was one of the worst moments of their life, or have branded society has branded them as like, you know, take a Britney Spears or Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus, you know, how do you pull through that? Or what's your advice to people to like pull through that to regain, you know, not only their composure but but their path in life, um, their own self confidence. Um, but also separating themselves from that experience?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. I mean, I think for me, one of the keys is identity. So I could see growing up, I was a Fairfax, which meant a lot in Australia and certainly in Sydney and family business. If my identity was in family business and Fairfax and what that meant, I would be in in trouble. Uh, But... You know, um, at least I can only speak for my journey. Uh, you know, I believe I believe everybody should have an anchor, you know, whatever their beliefs and values. It could be a major religion, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. It could be a philosophy. Most people today are spiritual, maybe not religious. Whatever yeah. your beliefs are, it doesn't matter. To other, it's not so much what other people think. It should be, what are yours? So for me, it was my anchor in Christian, my Christian faith that God loves me just because of who I am. Mm-hmm. I, I you know I've always believed that but it took a while to actually uh, actively believe it in my soul. Uh, so that was that's sort of a key part of being able to get over that worst day and as I mentioned when you're using your pain to help others in some sense it does make it worthwhile. It's not an overnight hey I'm good. It I talk about a healing balm, drops of grace. So for instance as I have begun speaking with the book release late last year to business groups and universities, the young people often resonate with it because I was 26 at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And people say, boy, that story was helpful and thank you so much. And uh, by the nature of their questions, I can see they get it. Like one student, uh, we were at Seton Hall in Northern New Jersey at one point, And one student afterwards said, so Warwick, how easy is it for you to go back to Australia? that's a great question because it's not that easy because I'm reminded the scene of the crime and my own mistakes and Mm. the money that tends to you know hurt people in in the within families so I think just having your identity rooted in not what you do or who you are your name or who your friends say or maybe you're a basketball star in high school and you know you've got few more pounds since and you know that that shining day is gone and will never return you know decades have gone past don't have your identity and who you were or what you do or how much money but have it in something more eternal whatever that means for you and as you begin to find that you can use your pain to help others it's not as painful for me to talk about that worst day because i'm talking about it like here on this podcast on the business method i'm talking about it not to wallow in it, but to help people. That's the whole point is to give people hope. And so I don't mind talking about it. I'm not bulletproof. I mean, you know, I had editorial cartoons done on me back in my newspaper days. You know, my my least favorite one was, how do you start a small business? Give Warwick Fairfax a big one. I mean, you know, (laughs) some of these are kind of brutal. And once Mm -hmm. in a while, they'll write stuff in Australia like they did a number of months ago. Hey, Warwick's coming out with the book and he'll tell you what he went through and how he came came through it for a price. Well, who sells their book for free? Right. I mean, come on, really? Yeah. You know, it's not like it costs $1000, I mean, you know. It's like it's just normal book price. It's like I mean, really? I mean, it just felt I mean, it didn't devastate me, but it annoyed me. It kind of yeah. hurt me at some point, a little bit maybe, but so I'm not bulletproof. Yeah. I mind that kind of story, you know.
0: Yeah.
2: But all in all, it's a lot easier for me to talk about my worst day. A, because I know my identity is not in being a media mogul or Fairfax family person. It's For me, it's being a child of God. And secondly, I'm using what I went through to help people. So that to me is the key of getting through your worst day. It doesn't define you, you have a whole life. Forgive yourself, forgive others. Those are all the key components for me. And frankly, for all of the 100 plus guests we've had of how you get back from your worst day and yeah you, know, you, you know it's always going to be a scar you know depending on what it is uh you know maybe it's difficult to talk about all the details but it's a lot easier than it used to be you know uh it really is the more you do it for for the right purpose it does get easier
1: yeah that's good that's amazing um you know i, I also on top of well there's something to say about You know, when you, when you do have a spiritual grounding, I'm a regular meditator and, um, it does really help go through the, help you go through those hard times because there's, there's something bigger than yourself. And, and, you know, have you read the book, um, sapiens? Have you ever heard of the book? Uh. No, it's a really good book. Anyway, it's it's really about the history of mankind. Um, dumbed down into like a 400 page book or 500 page book or something like that. Um, and he talks about like what <laughs> humanity has really evolved but the reason why we've unified become unified the way that we have has always been of an idea of like a higher power right if it was just like self-interest or one leader or even wealth uh, that people were seeking or trying to bond together uh, it, it would always end in some type of disaster but the reason why we evolved and continually unified into becoming better humans and, and closer humans and less warlike, even though we're still in a lot of wars. Um, but it's always been like the the idea of a higher power that has been able to keep us evolving and growing, right? And, and when you go mm-hmm. through, you know, if you do anything significant with your life, even if you just like live a, a regular life or an average Joe life. Um, having some spiritual type of foundation will almost always help you through those difficult times. And especially like for me, like reflecting and revisiting that experience until the pain is, is gone away um, or relieved significantly, which really helps as well. And as opposed to ignoring it and just letting it stay down, buried down inside of you.
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, for many and, you know, some may use meditation, yoga, other spiritual practices. It's important to have a set of tools that you mm-hmm. use. So I, I get angry, frustrated, sad, you know, depressed. I mean, uh, you know, just like everybody else. And when that happens, you know, I mean, for me, you know, I was a person of faith. I love uh, scripture memory. Um, you know, maybe it's First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and um, he'll make your path straight. I mean, whatever it is, there might be uh, mantras from different uh, re- religious, philosophical perspectives, books, but whatever kind of centers your soul, uh, I'm a person that prays. I also believe in, you know, life is, is a village. So if it's if it's personal, I'll talk to my wife. Gee, I'm angry and frustrated about something I'm not sure what it is Mm -hmm. we'll talk it through and yeah I'm afraid about this that and the other it's because of my past it's like okay well that's your past don't that's not who you are now okay that's right if it's business you know some people on my team but you know if I'm if I'm feeling bad about something I'm not just going to sit there I'm going to do something and it starts with for me prayer maybe scripture you know maybe meditation from a spiritual sense It's talking with people, getting myself started, and it does work, you know? It's like, I don't wait for that little ember to become a forest fire. You know, I deal with it immediately. And that's what I think everybody should. You know, whatever your spiritual practices are, and to me, it it must, not must, it often includes other people, Mm -hmm. you know, because other people can help us, people who really know us, we feel safe with. I think we should all have at least one person we feel like we can talk to and talk about anything with. If Absolutely. you don't, you need to find that person, <laughs> be it wife, husband, brother, sister, you know, mom, dad, friend, somebody. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's, you, you don't, don't wallow in anger and bitterness and, uh, you know, it, it. it's only get worse. You got to deal with it, deal with Absolutely. it as soon as possible. Absolutely. And then you'll be able to make better business decisions mm-hmm. too. Worse as I can testify, bad business decisions happen and you got a swirl of anger, bitterness, and emotion rolling around. So, mm-hmm. you know, if nothing else, be practical. If you wanna be successful in business, deal with that emotional stuff because then maybe you'll actually listen and make good decisions. So
1: it's extremely practical dealing with the emotional stuff. Tell us uh, what's going on with Crucible Leadership. Tell us what, what you guys are doing there and um, um, all the details.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. So yeah, Crucible Leadership, if you want to find out kind of more about me, it's crucibleleadership.com. As I mentioned, we've got a podcast Beyond the Crucible where a lot of times we interview people about their worst day and how they came back, but we also interview what we call perspective guests who have a perspective on, you know, how you bounce back from challenges to lead on life and significance. Um, I'm active on, um, Facebook and LinkedIn um, have, a, have a blog and uh, have begun to speak to all sorts of people, uh, college age, as well as business groups about my story. And we're looking at 2022, what are some other things that we can do, whether it's I don't know, e-courses or there's all sorts of things we're thinking of just to try to deepen the message with folks. But for me, I'm not driven by money or financial goals. It's it's how can we broaden and deepen the message to help people. And uh, unfortunately, in in uh, the business world, very few people seem to want to talk about failure. And so I'd love if what I did was felt less unique. Maybe it's good from a marketing positioning perspective, you know, blue ocean strategy to quote Renee Melbourne. And hey, it doesn't seem like a lot of people are doing this, talking about, gee, I was an idiot. And you know, it's not so much a marketing strategy. It's just kind of what I do. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, I find it very fulfilling. And uh, I just wish more business folks were willing to talk about it. Early on, I did a podcast at the Harvard Business School Alumni uh, group. And one of the heads of it just asked one of my team, you know, almost whispering, you know, is Warwick willing to talk about failure? Basically, mm-hmm. why did he say that? Because your typical Harvard MBA does not want to talk about failure. Right. Well, that's the whole point of what I do. So, you know, if you're a business person out there, I mean, Chris has mentioned, you know, you've had some challenges. You know, most entrepreneurs will fail. You know, they'll fail multiple times before they succeed. It's it doesn't mean you're a failure just because yeah. you've failed. So don't be embarrassed about it it's not who you are. So be willing. It's, a, if you're not willing to talk about failure, how in the world are you going to learn from it and move on? So, you know, don't bury it, talk
1: about it. Yeah. Know, it's really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you today, work. and uh, thank you so much for being open to share your story with us about one of the most difficult times in your life and and how you overcame it and then what you're doing now and so um yeah and i really i really liked that um you got into the juicy details about like getting over it and then pulling yourself out and and making it um something about helping others and so i do appreciate that is is there any final words of wisdom you'd like to drop off for our listeners before we wrap up
2: Well, thanks again, Chris, for having me. And I'd say for those listeners, if today's your worst day, maybe you've uh, lost a business, maybe something terrible has happened to you, your worst day doesn't have to define you. There there is hope. You can live a life of significance, a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. But no, it's not going to be easy. And it could take a long time to come back. But just think of what's one positive step I can make today. Maybe it's talk to a friend, talk to a loved one, begin to dream about how what I went through can help people. But, you know, your worst day doesn't have to define. You think of, you know, what's what's one small, it could be a micro baby step, but what's one small step I can do today? And I know it sounds trite, but enough of those small steps does add up to a lot of progress as you look back, but it just, you, you gotta be having the, have the courage
1: to take what's one small step about how small I can take today. Yeah, that's well put, my friend. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, crucibleleadership.com, is that the best place?
2: Uh, absolutely. And again, active on uh, Facebook under Crucible Leadership and active on LinkedIn under Warwick Fairfax. Warwick with the silent W there in the middle. Uh, <laughs> but
0: uh, it's
1: more so anyway, that's uh, some ways you can get a hold of me podcast beyond the crucible on all the platforms exactly right okay exactly right very yeah. very good work thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your tips and tricks and experience with us we really appreciate it thank you so much thank you chris really appreciate it and listeners we're gonna stop there thank you guys for tuning in once again and we'll see you on the next episode goodbye everybody hey listeners thanks for joining us and once again we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.